This morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, and reading from verse 9. page 970 in your pew Bibles, Matthew 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Stand again. We are in the middle of a, or approaching the end of a short series on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's Gospel, focusing especially on the second half of that prayer, focusing especially on the, the petitions to God within the Lord's Prayer. We've looked at the request for God to provide, give us each day our daily bread. We've looked at the request that God would pardon, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this morning, we look at what we might call the petition for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's amazing how uh, you, you can speak these very familiar words without really taking the time to think about them. Uh, and then you uh, give yourself the task of preparing a, a sermon on these words, and suddenly you find there's more to them than you had ever realized. So as soon as I started to, to think about this particular petition, uh, there was there was an immediate question or, or challenge. Why do we need to pray, lead us not into temptation, to the God who is holy? Does that imply that God might be tempted to tempt us? Well, we know the answer to that question, don't we, if we know any of the Bible. We know that the answer has to be no. God would never want to tempt us. God would never want to see us stumble into sin. Can't possibly be the case. It's unthinkable. We only have to look to the lengths that He went to to rescue us from our sin to see that it's impossible for God to want to cause us to sin, to want to tempt us to sin. But what we have here in this prayer, in this petition, in this verse, is another acknowledgement of our needs 
of our weakness, of our dependence upon God to do that which we cannot do, that which we so often in our own strength fail to do. Are we stronger than Moses who killed the Egyptian guard? Or are we stronger than David? There he is on the, the roof of the palace and he sees uh, Bathsheba bathing across the way. What should he do in that moment? As soon as he has seen her and seen her beauty, he should turn away, he should go back down into the palace and he should begin to do anything else. He should uh, engage his mind in something else, but he doesn't do that. He looks long and begins to imagine, let his mind wander. He, he, he walks into temptation, and before you know it, he's asking some of his men to go and to find out more about this beautiful woman. By the time that he finds that she is married, it's too late. His mind is gone. It's stepped into this world of temptation. And before long, David finds himself an adulterer and a murderer. Are we stronger than him? Or are we stronger than the Apostle Paul? Who said, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Then he says, what a wretched man I am. Are we stronger than him? The reality is we are just as weak as these men, and we could list more men and more women from the pages of Scripture who have stumbled, who have fallen into sin, who have experienced this, this tension within them between the good and the evil. And so, mindful of our weakness, we need to be careful and watchful and prayerful that we would not stumble into sin. And the Lord's Prayer requires us to acknowledge that weakness, doesn't it? To acknowledge our weakness, to acknowledge our dependence upon God again and again and again. Lord, I am dependent upon you. Provide my daily bread. Lord, I have sinned. I have amassed a debt that I owe to you that a lifetime of good deeds done would never pay back. Forgive me my debts. Lord, I am so weak when tempted, so apt to wander off into sin. Lead me not into temptation. So then another question. Why is it that we are so given to wander into temptation and to sin? when we have been made new in Christ. When we have been born again into this new life, lived alive 
to God. We've been given this new heart, which, which, uh, which is hungry for the Word of God. Why is it that we find ourselves tempted to sin? James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James says, if you're tempted to sin, don't blame God, blame your own evil desire. You might say, blame your own sinful nature, or what some translations of the Bible call your flesh, that old sinful nature. So when we come to faith in Christ, we are born again. We are given a new heart, a new nature. But the old nature, the sinful nature, the flesh is still there, and it still rears its ugly head from time to time. And you, you, you got that in what the Apostle Paul said, didn't you? Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. There's that new nature. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. These two natures fighting against each other within us. Paul says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if, the, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So this battle is not forever. One day we will be made new, we will be glorified, we will be like Jesus, there will be no more inner conflict. This battle is not forever, but this battle is for now. And Christians in previous generations have spoken a lot about the mortification of the flesh, about the killing of sin. But we don't speak so much about that now. And I think we are all the poorer for that. We don't speak about this war which rages within us, this battle between our old nature and the flesh and our new nature in Christ, that old nature which is keen to serve the lusts and the passions of the flesh and that new nature which is alive to the Spirit and working for holiness and purity. You'll have heard the story of the, the two dogs. I know you've heard the story because I've told it, and I know you've heard the story because I've heard someone else preaching here as a visitor tell it too. I don't know where the story comes from. It's one of these stories that is attributed to absolutely everyone if you go on the internet. So I don't know if it's from Spurgeon or from a 
Cherokee chieftain or from Yoda, or I don't know where the story comes from. It's attributed to everyone, so we'll just say anonymous. And the story also is not that good a story in some ways. It's a bit of a silly story. But I'm going to tell it anyway because it's one of those stories that for some reason sticks in your mind. And it might be that this story just comes back to you at just the moment that you need it to. So the story is about an old man with two dogs, a black dog and a white dog. And this man goes from town to town, from village to village, and he says the same thing to the people in every town that he travels to. He says, here are my two dogs. I'm staying in your town for a week. At the end of the week, my two dogs are going to fight. Now, I'm going to tell you which dog will win. The white dog will win. But if anyone wants to bet that I'm wrong, if anyone wants to bet that the black dog will win, I'll give you very, very good odds. So some people bet that the black dog will win, comes to the end of the week, and what dog wins? The white dog. Then he goes to the next town, he goes from Airdrie to Coatbridge, and he says the same thing, but this time he says, the, the, what was the first dog? The black dog? The white dog. This time he says the black dog will win. And he gives good odds for the white dog to win. And he gets people's money. And at the end of the week, what dog wins? The black dog. The dog that he says would win, wins. And he goes to the next town, goes to Easterhouse, he goes to Wishaw, he goes to uh, Blackridge, he goes to all these different places. And every single time, no matter what dog he picks to win, that dog wins. And eventually someone asks him what his secret is. Why is it that every single time he is able to pick the winning dog? And he says it's very, very simple. At the start of the week, I feed the dog that I want to win, and I starve the dog that I want to lose. And by the time the week comes to the end, uh, the dog that has been starved is in no condition to fight. But the dog that has been fed is ready and able to win the battle. So not a very good story, and I didn't tell it very well either. But it's one of those stories that will stick in your mind. The dog that I feed will win the fight. There are two natures battling within you, within all of us. The one that we feed will win. If we feed the new nature, the new heart that God has given us in Christ Jesus, then when temptation does come, or when it's near, when we can see it on the horizon, we'll be able to avoid it. We'll be able to walk away. But if we feed the old nature, if we feed the flesh with all of its sinful cravings and passions and lusts, then when that time of conflict comes, it's the flesh, it's the old nature that will win. It's very simple, really, but how often we fail to remember 
how often we feed the desires and the lusts and the passions of the flesh. John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. The more we toy with temptation, the more victories sin will have, the stronger its hold will be on our life. And that's how sin works. It always wants more. It's never satisfied, and we should never think that we can control it. We can say to sin, here and no further. It always wants more, and it is by its very nature both addictive and destructive. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This is the war that we have been called to wage in Christ Jesus. And maybe if your relationship with God feels a bit distant, you know, you you believe it all to be true, but somehow it just doesn't feel real or it doesn't feel alive or it doesn't excite you the way that it once did, then maybe part of the reason for that is that you've been feeding the wrong dog, that you've been toying with temptation, that you've been yielding to sin. Because sin kills the, the, the vital living relationship that we have with God in Christ. So the first enemy of the Christian is the old nature. The first enemy of the Christian is our flesh. But we have another enemy, don't we? Another who would see us sink into sin. The one who is actually called, in some places in Scripture, the tempter. Sometimes he is called the adversary or the enemy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is an evil one. I I don't like Halloween. It's my worst time of the year. And there's lots of things I don't like about Halloween. Um... I don't like uh, trick-or-treating. Not, I don't trick-or-treat, but I don't like it when people come to our house and ring the bell. But mainly because nowadays they seem to expect something for nothing. I don't know if that's the same where you live, but they come and they look at you, or they look at me, and I look at them, and they look at me with a wee basket of Haribo, And I look at them, and they look at me as if I'm the monster because I'm not giving them sweets until they've said a, you know, told me a joke or recited a poem or sung a song. I don't mind if it's mediocre, but they have to give me something before I part with my sweeties. So I don't really like parting with my sweeties. I don't like the trick-or-treating of Halloween, but that's not my least favorite thing about Halloween. That's not the thing I dislike the most. I don't like the horror films that are on television around that period of time. Um, But again, that's not the thing I dislike the most. There are all sorts of things I dislike about Halloween, but the thing I dislike the most might surprise you. I dislike uh, the the kind of cartoon satans with the plastic pitchforks that actually look really quite cute. You know those costumes you'll see in Tesco or in Morrison's? These wee children running about dressed up as the devil, but they actually look quite cute, quite cartoonish. 
And the reason I dislike that so intensely is because it sends a message, doesn't it? The, the, the cartoonification of evil, the cartoonification of Satan. What it says really is that this isn't really real. It says that this is all really just one big joke. But if you believe what Jesus has to say in Scripture, Satan is very real. And this is no joke. He is defeated ultimately, but he is dangerous. He is the great deceiver. He is the tempter. He is the one who has been lying from the very beginning, seeking to entice people to sin, to rebel against God. Did God really say? From Eden through the history of humanity, He has been tempting and deceiving and plotting and planning and manipulating trying to lead people away from God, to lead people into sin, which is slavery and which leads to death. How thankful we should be then for Jesus. He was tempted just as we are. The devil twisted Scripture lifted Scripture from its context and tried to tempt Jesus to sin. And time and time again, Jesus refused. We have a great high priest who has been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, yet he is without sin. He has succeeded where we have failed so many times, yet willingly he died in our place for our sin, on the cross. He has made the grade. He has bridged the gap. He has torn the curtain in two. He has opened the door for us to walk into the presence of God without fear of condemnation as we trust in Him. Remember that there is forgiveness to be found in Him if you have given yourself to sin. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. So call on His name. Humble yourself before Him and trust in the love that He has for you. Trust in the sufficiency of the sacrifice that He made for you. And then get back into this great battle between the two natures, between good and evil. Fighting the flesh and feeding the, the new nature, feeding the work of the Spirit of God within you. And pray that God would deliver you from temptation and from Satan. Praying that you would stay pure and holy because you know that your Father is pure and holy. Praying that you would stay pure and holy because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praying that you would stay pure and holy because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. 
praying that you would stay pure and holy because that is your identity now as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, as a dwelling place, a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. Don't deny who you are by giving yourself to sin. If we are honest, we are weak. But He is able and willing to help us to grow in holiness and grace and Christ-likeness. So pray for protection. Ask that God the Father, God your Father, would help you. But also seek and strive in the strength of the Spirit of God to be an answer to your own prayer. So don't pray, lead me not into temptation, and then walk out the doors of the church and head straight into temptation yourself. You know, if you're addicted to chocolate, don't fill your shelves with Kit Kats. <laughs> and your weakness might not be chocolate. It might be any number of other things. It might be alcohol. It might be gossip. Uh, it, it might be um, lust. It could be any number of things. But you will know your own weakness or your own weaknesses. And you have to be mindful of them. There might be places that other Christians can go and they're fine, but you know, given your weaknesses, you can't go there. There might be a circle of friends that, that as much as you could defend it by saying, I want to be a witness to them, you know that every time you're with them, it leads you into unhealthy, ungodly patterns of behavior. Be honest with yourself and with God. And make sure you don't fill your life with temptation. I think Oscar Wilde was probably joking when he said, I can resist everything except temptation. But I've always remembered that quote, and I try and live as if that's true. And I fail a lot. I say with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. But the first thing we need to do is to remember our weakness, to remember our dependence upon God, to remember our vulnerabilities, to pray passionately that he would lead us away from temptation, that he would lead us away from the working of Satan, and then as far as we are able to be an answer to our own prayer. I've told a number of stories uh, this morning. I don't like to fill my sermons with too many stories. And I've not told them very well, so I'm going to try one last story, one last illustration. The story of the wee boy who went into confession one day and said, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. The priest says, Son, how have you sinned? He says, Oh, Father, I've had bad thoughts, lustful thoughts. The priest says, Did you entertain them? The wee boy says, Oh, no, Father, I didn't entertain them. But they didn't half entertain me. And again, just a, a, a humorous story, but again, the importance of not entertaining uh, thoughts which we know will tempt us, thoughts which we know will entice us into sin. The importance 
as soon as we are tempted, as soon as that first thought enters our head, the importance of taking that thought captive for Christ. The importance of knowing that we cannot control sin, but that sin always seeks and strives to control us. And this may all seem very negative, but remember the reward, the reward of holiness. Holiness and happiness are tied together. Holiness leads to a living and vibrant and fresh relationship with God our Father. Holiness lends itself to our seeing the power of God's Spirit working in us and working through us in ways which amaze us, ways which go far beyond our expectations. There is a great reward waiting for those who pray this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. A great reward. So may we be those people who pray that prayer. May we be those people who feed the right dog, those people who avoid temptation and who grow in grace, who grow in holiness, who grow in Christ-likeness, who have a living, vibrant, vital relationship with God, and who see Him work in us and through us in wonderful, glorious ways for the honor of His name. May we be those people. Let's come before Him together as we pray.